Last week on the podcast, we began our exploration of soul care in the New Covenant, in the pages of the New Testament. We're calling this section of our study, All the Treasures of Wisdom and Knowledge. And so last time we considered the role of parents, particularly fathers, and then church leaders, uniquely pastors, in the work of soul care. We're going to take the third step in this discussion, and that's to ponder the role of church members. Church members. Now, here's where you really find out what you believe about soul care. Because it's one thing for Jesus to do this, right? Or for wise men or scribes or rabbis or Socrates or Plato or Aristotle, for that matter, or even for pastors or church leaders. Perhaps our culture might still give a hall pass to pastors and church leaders to do this kind of work. Maybe. But what about the rank and file? (laughs) What about your ordinary average walking with Jesus, reading your Bible, listening to faithful preaching, praying for your lost neighbors sort of believer. <laughs> In other words, what about us? Can, can we do this? Well, just a word on this. Uh, the world thinks you can't. You know, most churches and seminaries and pastors think you shouldn't. But what does God say? We don't have to wonder on this one. Uh, God doesn't leave this question open-ended. Romans 15, 14, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Now, the word for instruct there, nuthateo in the Greek, is a wonderful word. It means instruct. It also has shades of encourage, admonish, warn, confront, and yes, even counsel. So much so that Jay Adams, the late Jay Adams, who just recently went to be with the Lord, uh, gets the prize for the best English translation of Romans 15, 14, when he wrote uh, 50 years ago, you are competent to counsel one another. Now, the secular world believes that you and I are incompetent to do this. The church world, uh, encrusted and infected and enamored as it is with secular psychologies and therapies, is twice as convinced that you are incompetent to do this. But what does God say? Well, God says that you are able to instruct one another. God says you are competent to counsel one another, Romans 15, 14. Does the Bible really say this? Well, yes, repeatedly. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. As for you, Paul talking to Titus here, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Another classic soul care text in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, 
shows very early on in what is likely Paul's first epistle, that the church had an incredibly uh, sophisticated, flexible, case-sensitive approach to the care and the cure of souls. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is um, every is a is a passage that every counselor should memorize and when i say every counselor i mean every christian first thessalonians 5:14 and we urge you brothers admonish the idle encourage the faint-hearted help the weak be patient with them all now that is biblical counseling admonish the idle that's the nutheteo word in other words, you got to get right up in the grill of these kinds of folks. Grab them by the collar, put your forehead on theirs, lock eyeballs, turn it up to 11, and give them a swift kick in the pants. <laughs> Why? Well, because these folks can't hear you if you don't, and they don't respect you if you don't either. So be case sensitive with your counselees. Admonish the idle. Uh, the word idle can also be translated unruly admonish the unruly. However, biblical counseling is never a one-size-fits-all uh, boilerplate pat answer approach. Yes, admonish the unruly, but encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. The word for encourage here is an amazingly tender word, not the typical word for tender. Uh, Paul saves a very gentle, special, delicate word for this gentle, delicate, tender person in your church that would be just steamrolled if you admonish them. You don't admonish the faint-hearted. You encourage the faint-hearted. Remember Jesus. Jesus didn't break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering wick. He knew how to encourage them. Do we? Well, we're, we're commanded to. This is the sufferer. This is the depressed, the anxious. It could be even the addict. We're commanded to do this. Finally, help the weak. Help the weak. The word for help is kind of like hang on. <laughs> hang on and don't let them go. This might be the special needs child in your church. This is the severely autistic teenager. This is the elderly man or woman who needs assistance getting dressed, then with eating. And then a ride to church, and then someone to sit with, and then someone to take them to the restroom, someone to take them home and tuck them in at lunch because it's been a really long day. <laughs> Sunday morning is the fullest day of the week for the week, if you hear what I'm saying. You say, yeah, but that's not cool. <laughs> I've yet to encounter a New Testament command that is cool. I have seen some verses about care, though help the weak, hang on to the weak, and then be patient with them all. So the idle or the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak, each one needs our patience, our long suffering. Now, that was only one verse of the Bible. Had we time, which we don't, we could multiply text after text, Old and New Testament, that offers profound theological, practical help and hope as it relates to every aspect of counseling, to the personal problem sphere of life. I'll just reference a few, and you might look them up and consider applying them in the context of soul care on your own. Colossians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10. Matthew 7, 1 to 6, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 12, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 
Galatians 6, 1 to 5, Philippians 4, 2 and 3, and then Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. If you know Jesus, you can unfold these texts. If you have a Bible and you are a believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are competent to counsel. The frontline practitioners of New Covenant Counseling are men and women, boys and girls who love Jesus and meditate on the Word of God day and night. It's, it's us. Now, I suspect that there may be some listening that are still wondering if this vision really can fly. So in closing, I'd like to share a word with you about soul care. And it may not be the final word, but it certainly is an extremely helpful and hopeful one. It comes from the pen of Dr. David Pallison. Pallison went to be with the Lord just about a year and a half ago. Pallison asks this. You have to permit an extended quote here. Here's the quote. What do you see when you look at your Bible? Do you see a book crammed with relevance? Do you see a book out of which God bursts as he speaks to what matters in daily life? Is your Bible packed with application to the real problems of real people in the real world, inexhaustible, immediate, diverse, flexible? Or is the Bible relatively thin when it comes to addressing human struggles? So I'm going to pause from the quote here. What do you think? Is your Bible crammed or is your Bible thin? And why? Well, back to Pallison. I see two sorts of contemporary Bible-believing evangelical Protestants. One sort has a Bible crammed with relevance to human life. The other sort has a Bible of modest utility. The difference in seeing underlies many of the conflicts and misunderstandings within Christian counseling. Let me first discuss those Bible believers whose Bible is only a moderately useful resource. They may honor the Bible with noble-sounding descriptions. God's Word provides a framework of ultimate meaning. It's a quote-unquote resource for comfort in trials or for quote-unquote spiritual strengthening. Scripture maps out the way of ultimate salvation. Yes, it, it's useful for theology or for theoretical truths about God, heaven and hell, life and death, the kingdom, or the Christian view of, etc. It's an honored authority for reflecting on the large questions of life. Then Pallison asked this question, what's wrong with that last paragraph? Well, on the surface, nothing, except that all is rather vague and high-flying. Even theological liberals have uttered similar sentiments. The divide comes when you ask whether the Bible is truly useful in the trenches of daily life. Here, this sort of Bible believer turns to other sources of insight or guidance. Some turn to new or personalized revelations, prophecies, leadings, and intuitions, others to the secular psychologies for understanding and guidance. In either case, the Bible doesn't say enough about what matters in daily life. So again, we'll pause from this long quote. Do you see the distinction that Pallison is making? What do you suppose accounts for the existence of these two sorts of contemporary Bible believers? Both have a high view of Scripture's authority and inspiration, but they tend to part company when it comes to the issue of Scripture's sufficiency. Why? Something for us to ponder. 
Pallison continues, quote, Think of it this way. People with a relatively thin Bible have a vision defect. Their Bible is seen as a child's eight-key tin toy piano. Those eight keys uh, may be of central importance in music theory. The key of C major, beginning with middle C, sounds the basic do-re-mi after all. They'll do for Sunday school songs. But you can't play much of depth and interest. No sonatas, no fugues, no concertos. You can't sound the nuances, the variations, and the minor keys of life, and no mature pianist would bother plunking around on an eight-key tin toy piano. There are far more interesting and flexible instruments around. But for the other sort of Bible believer, the Bible is a grand piano. In fact, it's a grand piano plus the rest of the orchestra. (coughs) It sounds all the notes, all the tones, all the rhythms, all the keys, all the special effects, all the nuances. That's the vision biblical counselors have of the Bible. It's crammed. When people with thin Bibles hear people with crammed Bibles talk about the sufficiency of Scripture for counseling, they hear something thin and incomplete is sufficient for a very complex job. (laughs) And of course, it sounds ridiculous. Biblical counseling sounds absurd, doctrinaire, obscurantist, the rantings of small-minded know-nothings who glory in their ignorance. But when people with crammed Bibles speak of Scripture sufficiency, they mean, or ought to mean, something living and active, inexhaustibly rich, comprehensive, and relevant, is sufficient for a very complex job. (laughs) Now that sounds reasonable. And when in the trenches of face-to-face ministry, the Lord himself speaks to people, the profession of that vision is vindicated. Now, Pallison completes the picture this way. Vision defects aren't the only sort of defect, of course. There are also skill defects. We biblical counselors, as individuals, and even as a movement, don't always do the best job of playing the music. We all have skill defects. Someone who sees the grand piano, no vision defect, may only know how to play chopsticks, A novice on violin squawks. A novice on a trumpet blats. On drums, he thumps monotonously. Such failings make it hard for bystanders to catch the vision, but they do not invalidate the vision. There is a full orchestra. Let's grow up out of our failings and learn how to play. Skill defects are easier to overcome than vision defects, but God will overcome both to the praise of his glory. Is your Bible crammed, but your skills limited? A seeing child may stumble at first, but eventually he or she will run and skip under the Father's care. Or is your Bible relatively thin? A blind child can never walk without halting, but the Father can open eyes too. End quote. (laughs) The words of David Pallison from an article entitled, Do You See? from the Journal of Biblical Counseling, Volume 9, Issue 3, back in 1993. I will put a biographical note inside this week's show notes. In the church, we want to become increasingly competent to counsel both one another and those in our surrounding communities. 
Now, for many of us, this final observation of Pallison just hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? If you're an evangelical Christian with a high view of the Bible, you don't have a vision defect. When you look at your Bible, you know you're sitting in front of a grand piano. Rather, ours is a skill defect. That is, when it comes to counseling another person from its pages, that we can only play the equivalent of chopsticks. <laughs> well, praise God that this is the easier of the two defects to remedy. And over this next season, would you pray that God will equip all of us in this listening community to become increasingly able to do just that, to become Christians and churches that by God's grace are skillfully playing the music of the gospel into the lives of those around us. Let's pray that we would catch this vision. Starting next week, the series heads into church history proper as we leave the pages of the Bible and move into the pages of church history with a first episode called Valuable Cargo Through Difficult Waters, Soul Care Among the Church Fathers. We'll pick it up then. Until then, grace and peace.